Well, welcome, welcome to the good old days of radio show. This is John Tufteller, your host. It's Tuesday. Uh, normally on Tuesday we do uh, comedy, drama, or variety. We're going to vary that a little bit this week because our special guest, Mr. David Golden, has selected an episode of X-1, which we normally feature those types of shows on Thursday, but we're going to make an exception uh, because it is his choice to play that today, so we will. Before we get to that, let me again introduce our guest, J. David Golden, uh, the legendary old-time radio collector from everyone's past. If you collect ra collected radio shows anytime in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, you are certainly familiar with his work with Radio Yesteryear, uh, Murray Hill Records, all of those advertisements and popular mechanics to, to write into Radio Yesteryear and get a catalog. This is the man behind all of that, and we've been talking about his career in dealing with and collecting vintage radio shows for the last two episodes, and we're going to continue with that uh, now. Um, all right, we've covered your, your Radio Yesteryear, we've covered your producing LPs, Let's do something a little bit different. Quiet Please is one of my all-time favorite radio shows, and I understand that you can tell the story of how the Quiet Please episodes that we do have, and we don't have them all, but you can tell the story of how those came to be. Um, I can, and I will. will. you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Um, because there's I, a I, lot I, of people interested in that show. There's a lot of weird rumors that go around about how they came out and what happened. And I just figured we'd go right to the source because you are the source. So tell the story. All right. I am the tomato source. <laughs> um, uh, the story I'm about to tell is true. Only the no, that's a, that's dragnet um, or something else. Uh, this is a story that, so help me, is true, but I've been refuted, and someone told me, was it you who told me it wasn't true? Somebody told I me. I don't know. Tell wasn't. the story again, and I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. Once upon a time, I appeared on a jazz program in Miami, Ted Grossman's Night Train program. It's still on the air. I think it's been on like 40 years and uh, in the studio, uh, not on the air, but in the studio with me was the general manager of the station, which was WLRN-FM. And I say that slowly because it was a pun. Uh, the station was owned by the Miami Board of Education, which the pun was it was WLRN Radio Learn. Okay, I don't know what Dave Golden had to do with that, but after the program, uh, we went out to exercise my elbow, and over on the libation, the manager of the station, a gentleman by the name of Roger Cobzina, if anybody knew him, uh, he's since passed away. Roger happened to mention that although he was vaguely interested in old radio programs. He wasn't quite as cuckoo as I am, but he happened to know the widow of Ernest Chappell. 
Ernest Chapel. Yes, keep going. Ernest Chapel, for those who don't know, but most people who listen to my podcast are well familiar with Quiet Please. But Ernest Chapel was the announcer on Quiet Please. Yeah, he wasn't called an announcer. They referred to him as the man who spoke to you. Yes. Loved it. I loved it. Well, I never met Ernest Chapel. I never met his widow either. But Roger Kabziner said uh, she lives in the same complex that I do, and she happened to mention uh, about the quiet please recordings that she had left by her husband, who had died before. Uh, she said that she had sent the original. Now, this is I'm quoting Mrs. Chapel. Now, I'm not. I'm paraphrasing Mrs. Chapel. She sent the transcriptions to the broadcast museum in New York City uh, to be recorded. And they promised to send the discs back with cassette recordings of the program, which she was happy with. She wasn't technically oriented. Cassettes were okay in those days. Well, according to Roger, the Broadcast Museum, and I have my own problems with the Broadcast Museum, which I'd like to tell you some other time, uh, kept the transcriptions. They never sent the transcriptions back, and they never even sent the cassettes back. And so I said to Roger, Roger, get off your duff and get those cassettes back at least. Uh, fade out, fade in. A couple of months later, Roger says, she's got the cassettes back. Great. I said, Roger, you have an action-packed expense account like Johnny Dollar. You romance Mrs. Chapel, whatever it takes, take her out to dinner, a show, whatever, but become friends with Mrs. Chapel and borrow those cassettes. Um, now this is my devious New York mind it, it, uh, at work. It turned out that all he had to do was ask her, and she willingly gave the cassettes. I, I was ready to set up a three-act drama. And this okay, so Roger, <laughs> Roger has the cassettes and sends them up to me in Connecticut. And I put the first one on, and it, it made a toilet flushing sound good. It was the worst god-awful programming I ever heard. Scratching, noise, hum, whistles, bells, everything except the clean signal. And in these days, now we're talking about the uh, Jurassic period, uh, they didn't have things like um, cedar, which cleans up quite well. My seating machine worked great. Uh, and they didn't have noise reduction. And they didn't have digital in those days. So, so I, I re-equalized the programs. I tried to cut out some of the ticks and pops. I did have an analog noise reduction unit. I, I had two, one by KOH and the other one by SAE. They, they, they were consumer units, but they worked fine and they reduced the noise by about half as much. And I offered these programs for sale uh, with a proviso. Please be aware, these recordings sound terrible. No, no, no guarantee is given. It's the best I can do. And I think I, I started selling uh, 70 of them, 100 of them. I don't recall. Uh, all I had, I offered. And uh, they sold quite well. And this, this was the origination of all 
the the programs of uh, Quiet Please that you've heard, except for the thing on the formal board, which is a program I issued on an LP record and is in beautiful condition. But anyway, so all of these cassettes were turned into other cassettes and C, no, not CDs, uh, uh, reel-to-reel tapes and sold to the public. And if you've heard any of these today, that's where they came from. So my thanks to Roger Kobzina and my thanks to Mrs. Chapel, uh, which I, I presume she's passed on since. Um, and, and that's where Quiet Please, for the most part, came from. Well, the um, Broadcast Museum in New York has none of them on disc. They do have some cassettes there, which if you go there, they will let you hear them, but they don't allow any copies to be removed from their premises. And they do have four or five, maybe ten programs there that are not circulating around. So whatever you got from Mrs. Chapel apparently wasn't all of it. They, they withheld some of them. Uh, but the transcription discs have vanished. No one seems to know where they are. The gentleman who's currently and has been for a while running that broadcast museum has no idea. He said, well, I thought we sent them over to the Library of Congress. Then you call the Library of Congress and they say, well, we don't have them. We never got them. So who knows? They went somewhere, but they vanished. And I've been trying to figure out where they might be with no luck whatsoever. I have a story about the Broadcast Museum that you haven't heard. Well, go ahead, as long as it won't get me sued by the Broadcast (laughs) Museum. (laughs) If that wasn't a cue, nothing was. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. The story behind that is as follows. Here I am at CBS as a radio engineer, and I worked primarily the overnight shift. And when I was working at the 57th Street Studios in New York, Oh, about uh, 20 feet from Walter Cronkite's office, about 30 feet from the set of 60 minutes, a radio network like CBS at the time had no entertainment programs. They were mostly, if not entirely, news, except for those two band remotes that I did, come to think of it. So I had to do the... 7 o'clock evening news on the East Coast, the 8 o'clock, the 9 o'clock, the 10 o'clock, with nothing in between. Now, this is not a radio station. It's a radio network, which puts out programs for radio stations, which broadcast continuously. If you're a network and you're not sending out a network program, you put tone on the line or just keep silent. Okay, after 11 o'clock in, uh, in the evening, the control of the network was switched over to the West Coast, and the network, uh, midnight, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 a.m. newscast came from Los Angeles. So what did they give Dave Golden to do, since I was working there till 2 in the morning at the time, and only had to work five minutes out of the hour? Sounds like a good job, doesn't it? Well, it gets to be boring until one day, my supervisor came up to me and said, Dave, he called me Dave because that was my name. He said, he said, Dave, I've got another job for you to do in between newscasts. Uh, okay, I'll bite. What is it? And he said, 
William Paley, who was the boss at the time, wants to start a broadcast museum. It's going to be called the William Paley Broadcast Museum. And the nexus of the collection is going to be the CBS radio network programs that we currently store in a bonded warehouse in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which, if you're not familiar, is right over the George Washington Bridge from New York City. And we want you to record them at night for the museum. I said, okay, great. Um, what kind of recording did they want? And now here, hold on to your upper plate. The specifications from the broadcast museum was that they wanted the recordings transferred from 16-inch discs to audio cassettes. Oh, boy. Oh, boy is right. In addition, it gets better. As they would say during those mail-order commercials on television, wait, there's more. You can get two. Okay. The addition was the only cassette machines allowed in CBS of any kind were called Norelco Carry Quarters. And if you are old enough to remember 1970 those, those or thereabouts. Those little, little tiny ones with the cheapy microphones? You got it. Uh, today they're referred to as shoebox recorders. Yes. But the, the reason CBS had them was because network radio correspondents were not allowed to make their own recordings. You needed an IBEW unionized radio engineer like yeah. me to, to start the little cassette. <laughs> so to get, to, to get around that, they uh, negotiated with IBEW, which, if, if you don't know, uh, listeners, it's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, one of the three unions I had to join uh, during my career. But uh, they allowed newscasters to make their own recordings without a engineer if they used a Norelco carry recorder. It was specified. That's what they. So that's all CBS had. So. I'm in a studio with four, count them, four, Ampex console machines. They were 354s, if you remember the model number. Very nice machines. Yeah, they're nice, they're excellent machines, standard of the day. Uh, and they wanted their recordings transferred onto cassettes. Okay, who am I to argue? So the first thing that the uh, maintenance department did was to install uh, turntables because CBS had no turntables in their studios. We hadn't played records in years. This is a network now, not a radio station. Right. After the turntables were installed, it turned out the cartridges were made for LP records, not transcriptions. <laughs> oh, so, boy. So I started to bring in my own cartridges. I happen to be partial to General Electric cartridges, um, which were popular in 1948 and 49 when these uh, transcriptions were, were actually cut. So I brought in the transcriptions, and I recorded uh, these CBS network radio shows um, for the Broadcast Museum on cassette, and I recorded a copy on the Ampex tape recorder for myself. Well, that was hey, good. Uh, hey, as long as they're paying me to do it, I might as well do it right. So... Uh, I did this for, oh, I would say maybe four or five months uh, on every day except Sunday nights when I did the band remotes. Uh, 
um, I would be recording old radio shows. Now, guess what happened to the transcriptions? Well, I know they don't I have them anymore, you. so go ahead. I tell hate me. to tell you, the, the, the maintenance department, uh, or, or you and I would call them today janitors, but they were maintenance engineers, would walk around with large canvas dollies, uh, like postal tubs, if, you, if you've ever seen those canvas things in a post office. And they would take the transcriptions that I had finished recording them <clears throat> and toss them in the uh, canvas dollies. And then I said, what are you doing with them? He said, we're throwing them away. And at that point, I didn't say, save them for me. It never occurred to me. <laughs> too bad. But I, uh, well, no, not too bad, because I had tape copies of them anyway. Well, yes, but still too bad. John, do you happen to think that you might be a little bit prejudiced about records? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> because, because technology has improved since those days, and you could get better transfers off those things now than you could back then. As good as you did them, they could be improved upon now, but you have to have access to those transcription discs. I agree with you 100%. No argument. Okay. So that's why I'm so, cringing listening to all these being thrown away because I happen to know someone who works at CBS now, and there is nothing like that over there anymore. It, it is unfortunate that I wasn't given a choice. The subject of me being the garbage man on those transcriptions never came up. Yeah, well. And I certainly wasn't one to tell my boss that uh, this is what ought to happen. By the way, my boss at the time was a guy named Mort Goldberg, which some people may remember as the guy who produced the CBS radio workshop program called I Have Three Heads. That's about the tape uh, recorder. That's about right, the three-head Ampex tape recorders. And at this time, Mort Goldberg was my boss. And... Um, Needless to say, we had a good time talking about old radio, too. Um, you know, that's, a, that's one nice thing about working at a radio network is you meet radio people, and you can talk radio. Right. And you know how nutty we are. So. Of course. Anyway, where were we? Well, uh, so I think, that, you're, that I think the, you're done with telling me how CBS threw all their transcriptions away after you were done transcribing them. <laughs> I, I wish I could have done them at, at 66 and two-thirds. Yeah. I would have gotten a lot more. But Did you do everything? Possible. Did you do everything they had or only no. a portion of it? No, I, I did everything that was brought in, and I had no choice about what kind of programs ah. were brought in. But there were other people doing it, too. Oh, it was. Uh, I only worked five nights a week. There were uh, people who worked the other two nights, and for all I know, they were being done in California as well. I don't know. Well, a the, anything the, oh, the CBS oh, recording, sorry, the CBS recordings in California, were located at KNX Radio on Sunset Boulevard until the mid '60s, when they were donated to Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters. Um, they had a large library of transcriptions there, which wound up at Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters. The the um, situation in the East Coast was somewhat different. Because the so-called Broadcast Museum was right next to BlackRock. BlackRock was, is, no, was, the CBS building on 6th Avenue uh, and Hamana Hamana, about 45th Street, right, just north of Radio Center, Radio City. 
Um, and the Broadcast Museum was in an extremely high-rent district. Uh, the neighbor of the Broadcast Museum on the other side of Black Rock was the uh, 21 Club. So this wasn't exactly a warehouse district, and I can understand why they didn't want to devote space to storage transcriptions. And, and we're talking about now 40 to 50 years ago. I have no idea what the plant facility is at that museum now. I haven't had anything to do with them. Yeah. All right. Well, on that unhappy note, let's switch over to X-1, a, a science fiction show. Uh, this one is from September 11th, 1956. You have uh, chosen this one because it, I guess, is your favorite episode of the show. And you told me you have something that you would like to read about it before we play the show. Yes, I do. Um, you haven't named this program yet. The Lifeboat the Mutiny. Yes, the Lifeboat Mutiny was one of those programs that I listened to when I was a kid. And if you can look at the date of the program, you can see I was a small kid. I don't think I was more than three feet tall at the time. But I listened to that show and thoroughly enjoyed it, which made it kind of a, a postmark for me, a, a significant era thing. And then comes the time when I'm working at NBC and I meet some of the people who were involved with the program. Now, I never spoke to Ernest Canoy, but he was always around the studio. Fred Collins was the announcer who was always around the studio. Now, the program must have been, must have been coming from the coast, the body of the program, because the people in it, Leon Janney, William Redfield, Mandel Kramer, those are West Coast performers, I believe. Do you agree? I don't, I'm not sure. No, X-1 came, was recorded in New York. Okay. It, it's certainly possible. I never thought that Mandel Kramer was necessarily an East Coast uh, performer. But nonetheless, Ernest Canoy was visible. The producer of this particular show was a gent named Daniel Sutter. And when I was at NBC in the mid-60s, I was once assigned to edit tape for Danny Sutter. And I happened to, as I mentioned on a previous program, I happened to think I'm a hot shot tape editor. I was really good, and I knew I was good. Danny uh, took one look at me, I should say Mr. Sutter, because he was an elderly gent at the time, must have been at least 50, uh, and, and dressed in a suit and tie as I was, uh, said, I don't want to work with this new guy. And I'm standing right there, so how do you think I felt? <laughs> um, and, and sure enough, I was shuffled off the program and never got, well, I don't remember what program. But I did work with Danny Sutter, I think, on the, um, uh, just a second, the Craft. 74th anniversary program with Edgar Berger. And let me tell you, Bergen is a riot in person. And Henny Youngman was there and all kinds of really famous people. It was a fun show. Okay, getting back to X-1. The people that I worked with included some of the best announcers in the business. 
I, I once told uh, Harry Marble that I thought he had a great voice, and he looked at me like I was nuts. Of course I have a great voice. I can hear him saying, because I've been here for 40 years, and I just happened to say that, too. Okay, the guy at NBC who I admired the most and whose voice you will recognize was a guy named Fred Collins. And Fred had the distinction <laughs> of being the first announcer that I ever worked with at NBC, and it turned out I was the last one to introduce him to the public, which I'll tell you about momentarily. Uh, the reason I wanted to read this to you is it's an excerpt from a book that I contributed to about voice over announcing. Now, I don't claim to be any kind of an announcer. I always say I, I sound like radio free Bronx. I have a thick New York accent. I'd never make it as an announcer. But I know enough about announcing to know good from bad. And I was so impressed with Fred Collins. Now, you've only heard him say things like, uh, you know, stay tuned. This is NBC, the radio network, that kind of thing. Well, Fred put on a virtual performance the first time that we met that I wrote down my impressions of Fred. And it appeared in this book that I contribute to, contributed to called voiceover announcing. So allow me the privilege, please, of reading my, my tribute to Fred Collins. Go ahead. And it starts, the most talented voiceover announcer I ever had the privilege of working with was Fred Collins. Fred was an NBC staff announcer from about 1944 to 1970. He never worked the big blockbuster radio shows to my knowledge. He was the announcer on such forgettable gems as Inspector Thorne, The Falcon, The Chase, The Silent Men, Mr. I.A. Moto, Top Secret, The Big Guy. You get the idea. He never had the really name programs. But he was also the voice on Dimension X and X-1, which were two science fiction classics that were my particular favorites in the 1950s. Also, keep in mind, I was a teenager in the 1950s. Okay, um, where was I? I never thought much about Fred until my Group 5 supervisor one day said, meet Nancy Howard in Studio 2C for some TV A&P at 2 o'clock. My first reaction was, well, I have no idea what A&P means in a radio studio. Uh, I'd never heard that expression, but I knew enough to take the elevator down three flights to Studio 2C. Uh, I'd never been in this studio before, and with good, good reason. It must have been the oldest radio studio in Radio City. Um, it had a wooden control uh, console. Uh, if you can picture that on the console, which was painted black, were large red and blue bulbs, so you could tell which network you were sending the program to. There were large rotary knobs to control the inputs and large telephone-type toggle switches with the appropriate colored lights. The air had an aroma of frying resistor. Anybody who worked in a radio station will know that smell of frying resistor. And on the wall was a large Western Union clock. In one corner of the studio 
stood a small grand piano and two doors mounted on wheeled carts that were obviously left over from the sound effects department. Scattered about were a dozen RCA 44 ribbon microphones, each of them a valuable antique today, and behind me were two large RCA T11 tape recorders, each one large and powerful enough to propel itself through the Lincoln Tunnel. Most of us have never seen an RCA T11 tape recorder because only RCA was dull enough to use them. They were terrible. As I was sitting in the control room absorbing all this, in walked Nancy Howard at five minutes to two. The first and most lasting impression I had of Nancy Howard were, was the two large stopwatchers on lanyards about her neck. I remember thinking, why does she have two? Nancy said hello, put down a stack of scripts in front of the director's chair, and I remembered trying to decide whether or not to ask her what A&P meant at a radio network. I chose instead to ask her, what would you like me to do? She said, open mic number one. Okay, I can do that, and did so just as two things happened. The clock on the wall received its hourly sync pulse from the Naval Observatory. Uh, a small light went on and a gear winding noise was heard. The minute and second hands jumped to 12. At the same instant, Fred Collins walked into the studio, sat down at mic number one, and said to me, how's this for level? Well, the level was perfect. So I asked Nancy, do you want me to roll a tape? Not necessary, Nancy said, uh, as she got up and to hand Fred his copy of the scripts. I later learned that TVA and P stood for Television Announcements and Promotions. Uh, these were, and, and maybe still are, the brief messages that you hear at the end of a TV show as the credits roll at the end of each show. It wasn't necessary for me to roll a tape because another NABET technician, that's a union, was upstairs in room 770, which was called radio recording. How would you like to retire to a room called radio recording? And they did it for me. I had already done all that I was required of me, so I had the chance to sit back and watch a truly virtuoso performance. The first script, read something like this, and I'm making this up because I don't remember what it really was. Uh, the script read something like, See Lorne Green as Ben Cartwright clash with Little Joe over the future of the Ponderosa Ranch this Sunday on Bonanza at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, 8 p.m. Central Time on NBC. I thought, did they actually pay someone to write this stuff? Okay, said Nancy, rapidly clicking her stopwatches. That ran eight seconds. Give it to me more relaxed than 12. Fred nodded, did it again, and donned if Nancy didn't click off 12 seconds. Now, how did he do that? Nancy said, okay, script two, change this Sunday to tonight, and punch the words Lord and Green. Fred read script two, and it ran eight seconds. Stretch it, said Nancy, and Fred read it in 12 seconds. Uh, if, if you don't remember Fred's name, you'll certainly remember his voice if you were around at this time. I sat there for almost an hour 
while Fred read one script after another. He seldom stuttered. He never put the emphasis where Nancy didn't want it, and the timing was always perfect. After the last script, he said thank you to me and told Nancy he had to do a break on local, which was WNBC in New York, in just three minutes. And I was wondering as he left if the elevator back to the fifth floor was ever late. Well, that is part of, of uh, a, a history chapter that I did in this book. Uh, I, I don't think it will ever make um, the bestseller list, but at least it, it reminds me of Fred Collins, who you will hear in this episode of X-1. Okay. Well, with that glowing introduction to the career and uh, greatness of Fred Collins, here is the X-1 show from September 11th, 1956, The Lifeboat Mutiny. In just a moment, X-1, but first... Boy, that kind of music went out with a handlebar mustache, didn't it? But the kind of wonderful melodies you'll hear on NBC's bandstand are guaranteed to remain popular throughout the years. This is Bert Parks, your bandstand MC. I'd like to invite you to spend two full hours each weekday morning with America's top-name bands, groups like Guy Lombardo, Dorsey Brothers, and Ralph Flanagan. They'll entertain you in person. So listen Monday through Friday to NBC Bandstand. Now stay tuned for X-1 on NBC. After tonight's broadcast, X-1, the adult science fiction show, will not be heard until Wednesday, September 26th. It will be heard on Wednesdays thereafter. For the exact time, consult your local newspaper. And now, X-1. Countdown for blastoff. X-5, 4... Three, two, X minus one, fire. the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. This week, the police chiefs of the country are meeting in Chicago for the 63rd Annual Conference of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Tonight, X-1 is proud to salute them as we present The Lifeboat Mutiny by Robert Sheckley. we should have known better. In a way, we were asking for it, but frankly, we were short of credits and beggars can't be choosers. 
As a rule, I don't like second-hand equipment. Not if I have to trust my life to it. But Joe, the interstellar junk man, can be pretty persuasive. He has an air of confidence when he walks down between the rows of antique jalopies on his lot and pats an airlock door lovingly or kicks at the ground gyros to show how firm they are. Joe exudes faith the way trees drip sap in the spring. And if you get too close, a little rubs off on you. Yeah, you see? Solid as a rock. Look at that plating. I'm telling you, this boat is a real buy. Uh, she looks pretty old. Sure, she's old. Uh, now, don't give us that story about it belonging to a little old lady who used it to flip to church on Sundays. Now, look, boys, I'm not trying to unload something on you. I don't stand to make a nickel on this, but tell me the truth. Did you ever hear sweeter engines? And look at those servos. Pretty old. And that hull. I bet it's 500 years old and not a spot of corrosion on it. I'm telling you, you're lucky. It's a coincidence, you two fellas coming in. You need a lifeboat. And sitting right here waiting for you. Like you was made for each other. Is this baby. Well, she certainly does seem rather nice. What do you think about it, Dick? It does look pretty good. It's about what we need for the ocean survey work on Trident. But you know Joe. Ah, they just don't build them this way anymore. Look at that propulsion unit. You couldn't dent it with a trip hammer. And note the capacity of the cooling system. It looks good, but some of these old machines, you know, I just want to make absolutely sure it's safe. Safe? <laughs> safe? He asked me if it's safe. Is it? Now, uh, step inside. Go ahead. Step inside. All right. Push that button. Right there on the instrument panel. This one? Hey. I am lifeboat 324A. Hey, the darn thing talks. Yeah, and in English, too. <laughs> it's equipped with a universal translator. It's completely automatic. I told you, they just don't build them this way anymore. Go ahead. Push the button again. I am lifeboat 324A. My primary purpose is to preserve those within me from peril and to maintain them in good health. At present, I am only partially activated. Would anything be safer? Uh, this is no senseless hunk of metal. This boat will look after you. This boat cares. I don't know. The idea of an emotional machine always gets me. I can't even stand those robot maitre d's. They keep slobbering over you every time you go into a restaurant with their tubes just pouring kindness and consideration. Ah, oh, you're a reactionary. We'll take it. You won't be sorry. Boys, you just bought yourselves a lifeboat. Joe delivered this assurance in the frank and open tones that had helped make him a millionaire several times over. It wasn't that he was dishonest. Far from it. All the flotsam he collected from anywhere in the universe worked. But ancient machines often had their own idea of how a job should be done. They tend to get peevish when forced into another routine. Well, there she goes, lifeboat 324A. I got her down in the afterhold. I think she's in perfect condition. You know, it's just what we need for those oceans on Trident. I hope so. The last thing I bought from Joe was an electric razor. Only it turned out that it came from Deneb 3, where they are slightly reptilian. And an electric razor is used to help them change their skin in the hot months. If you remember, I was in the hospital three months, and after the skin grafts, I don't know my ears from my elbow. 
This job we were on was to survey the planet Trident for a real estate speculator who bought it for subdivision. Trident was about the size of Mars, but with a far better climate. There was no native indigenous population, no poisonous plants, and no germ-borne diseases. As a matter of fact, apart from one small island and one small polar ice cap, the entire planet was covered with water. There was no real shortage of land. You could wade across some of Trident's several seas. Our firm had been hired to survey and plan a little mountain raising because the sector council frowned on selling building lots under four feet of water. We landed on Trident and launched the lifeboat. Okay, I got the sandwiches in the water. Ready to cast off? Aye, aye, sir. All mooring lines are on board. All right, let's crank this swan boat up and get going. Well, push that button. (laughs) Aye, aye. I am lifeboat 324A. My primary purpose is to preserve those within me from peril and to maintain them in good health. At present, I am only partially activated. For full activity, press button two. There it is, right next to the first one. Well? Something's going on back there. Sounds like motor's warming up. Hey, that sounds like a short circuit somewhere. You know there's no wheel on this thing? Oh, wait a minute. There's got to be some kind of tiller or control. Well, you look. That's all there are, two buttons. Well, then maybe she controls telepathically. I'll try it. Hey, uh, 324A, go ahead slowly. Ah, there she goes. That's it. Starboard a little. Uh, Wait a minute. I still don't like the sound of that. I bet there's a short somewhere. I'm going down to look for it with a circuit tester. Don't louse anything up. I like a boat that works this way. It gives me a sense of power. Hey, 324A, full speed ahead. Arnold disappeared into the bilge with a circuit tester, and I handled the survey. Actually, our machines did all the work, tracing the major faults in the ocean bottom, locating the most promising volcanoes. When the survey was complete, the next stage would be turned over to the subcontractor. He would wire the volcanoes, seed the faults, and touch the whole thing off. After that, there'd be enough dry land on Trident for anybody. By mid-afternoon, I figured we could knock off for a while. We ate our sandwiches, took a drink of water from the canteen, and then had ourselves a swim in Trident's clear green water. Hey, give me a hand up. That was very refreshing. Oh, yeah. I'll have to get this grease off with sandpaper, but I think I found the trouble. You see, the leads to the primary activator have been removed and the power cable's been cut. Well, why would anyone do that? Well, it might have been part of the decommissioning, but I got it hooked up now. Go ahead, hit the second button. Might as well have this thing working right. Okay, here she goes. Activated and able to protect my occupants from danger. Have faith in me. My action response tapes, both psychological and physical, have been prepared by the best scientific minds 
in all drone. Ah, that's more like it, huh? Gives you a feeling of uh, confidence, doesn't it? I suppose so. Where is drone? Gentlemen, try to think of me not as an unfeeling mechanism, but as your friend and comrade in arms. I understand how you feel. You have seen your ship go down, Hmm? cruelly riddled by the implacable Hgen. What ship? What's it talking about? You have crawled aboard me, dazed, gasping from the poisonous fumes of water, half dead. Oh, no, wait a minute. You mean that swim we took? You got it all wrong. We were just surveying. Half dead, shocked, wounded, morale low. You were a little frightened, perhaps, and well, you might be, separated from the drone fleet and adrift upon an alien planet. A little fear is nothing to be ashamed of, gentlemen. But this is war, and war is a cruel business, and we have no alternative but to drive the barbaric again across space. There must be a reasonable explanation for all this. Probably an old television script got mixed up in its response bank. We better give it a complete overhaul. We can't listen to that stuff all day. Well, we're about a quarter of a mile from the island. Ah, I'll tell you what. I'll take it down and clean the goo out of the contacts when we get there. Hey, what's going on? We're stopping. Hey, hey, lifeboat. Quiet, calm, trust in me. I am scanning the island. What's he talking about, scanning the... Better humor it. Lifeboat, uh, that, that island's okay. We, we, we checked it personally. Perhaps you did, but in modern lightning-quick warfare, drone senses cannot be trusted. They are too limited too prone to interpret what they wish. Electronic senses, on the other hand, are emotionless, eternally vigilant, and infallible within their limits. But there isn't anything there. I perceive a foreign spaceship on the island. Oh, that's our ship. It has no drone markings. Well, it hasn't any enemy markings either. I painted it myself. In war, we must assume that what is not ours is the enemy's. Oh. I understand your desire to set foot on land again, but I take into account factors that a drone motivated by his emotions would overlook. Consider the apparent emptiness of the strategic bit of land, the unmarked spaceship put temptingly out for bait, the fact that our fleet is no longer in this vicinity. All right, all right, that's enough. Now, I'm tired of arguing with you. Go directly to that island. That's an order. I cannot obey that order. You are unbalanced from your harrowing escape from death. All right, all right, enough of this nonsense. I'm just going to take that cutoff switch and... Come to your senses, gentlemen. Only the decommissioning officer is empowered to turn me off. For your own safety, I must warn you not to touch any of my controls. You are mentally unbalanced. Later, when our position is safer, I will administer to you. Now my full energies must be devoted towards detection and escape from the enemy. Where are we going? To rejoin the drone fleet as soon as I can find it. sailed over the empty seas of Trident for the rest of the afternoon and far into the night. At about midnight, we sat in the cabin sharing our last sandwich. The lifeboat was still rushing madly over the waves, its every electronic sense alert, 
searching for a fleet that had existed 500 years ago upon an entirely different planet. Oh, why didn't I pack more sandwiches? Oh. Do you ever hear of these drones? Yeah, vaguely. They were non-human, lizard-evolved creatures. Mm. Yeah, they lived on the sixth planet of some little system near uh, Capella. The race died out over a century ago. Mm-hmm. And the Hagen. What about them? Also lizards, same story. Mm. Wasn't a very important war, you know. All the combatants are gone except this lifeboat, apparently. And us. We've been drafted as drone soldiery. You think we can reason with this, Tom? Oh, no, I don't see how. As far as this boat is concerned, the war is still on. It can only interpret data in terms of that premise. It's probably listening in on us now. No, no, I don't think so. Hmm? See, it's not really a mind reader. Its perception senses are geared only to thoughts aimed specifically at it. Yes, sirree, they just don't build them this way anymore. Oh, I wish I could get my hands on Joe. Well, you know, it's actually a very interesting situation. The machine is acting very logically upon no longer existent conditions. Therefore, you could say that the machine is the, uh, well, the victim of a systematized delusion. You mean the lifeboat is just plain insane? Well, I believe paranoia would be the proper designation. Ah, but it'll, it'll end pretty soon. Why? It's obvious. The boat's prime objective is to keep us alive. Our sandwiches are gone, and the only other food is on the island. I figure it'll have to take a chance and go back. Gentlemen, at present, I am unable to locate the drone fleet. Therefore, I am turning back to scan the island again. Fortunately, there are no enemies in this immediate area, so I can devote myself to your care. Oh, you see, it's about time you got around to us. We're hungry. Feed us. Of course. Immediately. There you are. On the tray. What's that? That looks like clay. Oh, it smells like machine oil. Hey, what's it supposed to be? That is Giesel. Hmm? It's the staple diet of the Drome people. I can prepare it in 16 different ways. Oh. Try it. All right. Mm. It tastes like clay coated with machine oil. We can't eat that. Of course you can. An adult Drome consumes... 5.3 pounds of diesel a day and cries for more. Now listen, we are not drones. We are humans, an entirely different species. The war you think you're fighting ended 500 years ago. We can't eat diesel. Our food is on the island. Ah, yes. Your delusion is a common one among fighting men. It is an escape fantasy, a retreat from an intolerable situation. Gentlemen, I beg you, Face reality. You face reality or I'll have you dismantled bolt by bolt. Threats do not disturb me. I know what you've been through. Possibly you've suffered some brain damage from your exposure to poisonous water. Poisonous? To drones. If absolutely necessary, I am also equipped to perform physical brain therapy. It is a drastic measure, but there can be no coddling in time of war. You see, you need not worry. All my scalpels are razor sharp and ready for immediate action. Oh, scalpels, huh? Well, we're feeling better already. That's a fine-looking batch of Giesel, isn't it, Arnold? Oh, uh, uh, delicious. Nothing is too good for our boys in uniform. Hmm. 
Do try a little. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's del- <coughs> delicious. <laughs> Good. I am moving toward the island now, and I promise you in a little while, you will be more comfortable. Why? The temperature here is unbearably hot. It is amazing you haven't gone into a coma. Any other drone would have. Soon I'll have it down to drone norm of 20 degrees below zero. And now I'll play our national anthem. should be very comfortable. Drones live at 20 below zero. We're drones and no yeah. back talk. Those cooling tubes are all frosted up. Yeah, I just wrote my name in frost in the porthole. Hey, wait a minute. Hmm? Wait a minute. I got an idea. Just follow my lead. Why not? Lead on, fellow drone. Ah, uh, give me the canteen. What are you doing? Ah, just, uh, just gonna get a little exercise. <laughs> Gotta stay fit, you know. That is true. Ah, uh, here you are, boy. Catch. Look out, that canteen's heavy. Ah, uh, just throw it right back, boy. Just heave it right in. Come on, let's see your curve. Be careful with that receptacle. It's filled with a deadly poison. Water. Oh, we'll be careful. Here we go. Bad shot, old man. Oh, how careless of me. I seem to have broken the cooling tubes. Cooling fluid all over the floor. I should have taken precaution against internal accidents. It won't happen again. But the situation is very serious. I cannot repair the cooling tube myself. I'm unable to properly cool the boat. Say, that's tough. Now, if you'll just drop us on the island... That is impossible. My first duty is to preserve your lives. And you couldn't live long in the climate of this planet. But I'm going to take necessary precautions to ensure your safety. What are you going to do? There is no time to waste. I will scan the island once more. If our drone forces are not present, we will go to the one place on the planet that can sustain drone life. What place? The southern polar ice cap. The climate there is almost ideal. 30 degrees below zero. And, of course, I must guard against any further internal accidents. So, I will lock you gentlemen in the cabin. Think. I am thinking. Nothing's coming out. We've got to get off when he reaches the island. It'll be our last chance. Now, look... We know his internal scanning isn't very good. When we reach the island, maybe we could cut his power cable. Oh, you couldn't get within five feet of it. He's got an electric charge on all the controls. I am now scanning the island. Uh, place looks fine today. Oh, sure does. I'll bet our forces are dug in underground. They are not. I scan to a depth of 100 feet. Well, uh, under the circumstances, I think we should examine it a little more carefully. It is deserted. I cannot let you endanger your lives by going ashore. Drome needs her soldiers. 
especially sturdy, heat-resistant types like you. We like this climate. Spoken like a patriot. I know you must be suffering, but now I am going to the South Pole to give you veterans the rest you deserve. Wait a minute. You don't understand. We're operating under special orders. We weren't supposed to disclose them to any vessel below the rank of Super Dreadnought. We're a suicide squad. Yes, yes, that's right. Especially trained for hot climate war. Our orders are to land and secure that island for the Drome forces. I didn't know that. You weren't supposed to. After all, you're only a lifeboat. Land us at once. I couldn't guess, you know. All right. We'll head for the island. Arnold, it's going to work. Why not, as long as we tell him the truth? The beach is only 50 yards away. No. No. No what? I cannot do it. What do you mean? This is war. Orders. I know, but I cannot obey. A different type of vessel should have been chosen for this mission. But not a lifeboat. You must think of our country. Think of the barbaric Hagen. It is electronically impossible for me to carry out your orders. My prime directive is to protect my occupants from harm. That order is stamped on my every tape, giving priority above all others. I cannot let you go to your certain death. You'll be court-martialed for this. I'll have you broken down to a dinghy. I regret to say I must operate within my limitations. I must take you to the safety of the South Pole. Listen, you crazy tin can. Let me at those controls. I'll... Please, do not attempt any more destruction. I know how you feel, Wait a but... minute, Arnold, old friend. Since we cannot accomplish our mission, we cannot ever again face our comrades. Death before dishonor. Hand me the canteen. No. Don't. That's water. It is a deadly poison. Don't. Don't. <sighs> Too late. Arnold, it's your turn. We who are about to die salute you. We die for glorious drone. That goes for me, too. Speak to me. Speak to me. I still, you idiot. There is no known antidote. If only I could contact the hospital ship. Speak to me. Are you still alive? Answer me. Here. Here. Perhaps if you eat some geezel. read the burial service. Great spirit of the universe, take into your custody the souls of these your servants. Although they died by their own hand, still it was in the service of their country, fighting for home and hearth. Judge them not harshly for their impious deed. Rather, blame the spirit of war that inflames and destroys the spirit of all drone. And now, by the authority vested in me, by the drone fleet, and with all reverence, I commend their bodies to the deep. 
Wow. Shut up. Accept them, O ocean, for many brave hearts are at slumber in the deep. Float quietly. <laughs> What's the lifeboat doing? It's still hanging around. Just pray the drones didn't believe in cremation. Sleep quietly, brave spirits. I will now play the drone national anthem. Well, there she goes. Where? To the South Pole. To wait for the drone fleet. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features The Man Who Ate the World by Frederick Pohl. This is the story of a civilization which flowed with milk and honey, and of a man whose tragedy was that he had not drowned at birth. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you The Lifeboat Mutiny, a story from the pages of Galaxy written by Robert Checkley and adapted for radio by Ernest Kenoy. Featured in the cast were Leon Janney, Mandel Kramer, William Redfield, and John McGovern. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. A special announcement to the audience of X-1, the adult science fiction show. X-1 will not be heard next week, but will resume broadcasts at a new time on Wednesday, September 26th, and every Wednesday evening thereafter. For the exact time of the broadcast in your locality, remember to consult your local newspaper. The music of Tommy Tucker, live on Bandstand... Weekday mornings on NBC Radio. Tommy Tucker, the music on bandstand. That's what you were referring to with uh, an earlier conversation, right? I'd like to say just a couple of more things that I recalled about this show. Sure, go ahead. Uh, the, the, the author, Robert Checkley, was noted for funny science fiction programs, and um, my collection of old Galaxy magazines, I also used to collect uh, editions of If, which was another science fiction magazine. Anyway, this story appeared in the April 1955 edition and was on radio about a year and a half later on September 6, 56. And there's something uh, more to, to listening to this than to just the story, which is pretty funny. Uh, and that's the sound effects. Now, this is a story on radio that depended a lot on sound effects. And I was speaking about this program to the last sound effects man at CBS. Uh, th there were lots of sound effects men at NBC and CBS, uh, but they weren't sa doing sound effects anymore because they were all gone with the wind. But uh, sound effects men had to be recycled into studio engineers or 
whatever. And there was still plenty of them around. And uh, the last CBS sound effects man was, was uh, a, a good friend of mine named Hamilton O'Hara. Uh, Ham O'Hara was married to the first weather girl in uh, New York City. The name Carol Reed would not be familiar to you, but uh, it would to uh, New Yorkers of a sudden age. Ham um, told me that this program, uh, as well as several of the other X-1s program, did not create the sound effects that you heard, nor were they taken from the standard sound effect libraries, which had been heard to death for the past 20 years. The NBC had a deal to use the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And if you've never heard of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and probably nobody has, it, it was, I think, created in the 50s and 60s uh, just for the purpose of making interesting sound effects uh, for BBC programs. And these uh, sound effects, especially the Drome National Anthem, was, I believe, according to Ham O'Hara, uh, taken from the uh, radio workshop uh, uh, working discs. And I, I got to tell you one thing about Ham O'Hara, the last sound effects man uh, at NBC or CBS for that matter, there were none at NBC who were still doing sound effects, but Ham had only one job as a sound effects man, and that's all he did all week long. What a racket. Uh, during this time in the mid-60s, there was a, a slight conflict going on called the Vietnamese War. And almost every night on the Walter Cronkite News, there would be news film. People still used film in those days for the uh, evening newscasts of the soldiers or, or the enemy or what have you shooting at each other and bombs going off. And all of these films from Vietnam were shot silent. It was just too much to shoot in sound, too complicated, and you could get your fanny shot off anyway just doing visuals. So it was Ham's job to add sound effects of mostly machine guns and rifle fire and an occasional tank rolling by as uh, the evening news report from Saigon or wherever it was in Korea, excuse me, in Vietnam, was heard. So anyway, that's how the sound effects in New York ended with a with a whimper instead of a bang. And I got to say one more thing about Fred Collins. This this is the guy who was the first announcer I ever really got to see do his stuff, and that was in 1965, I guess. Fade out and fade into the year 2001. This was the year that. Uh, we had a Monitor reunion. Monitor was the weekend NBC service from 1955 to, I think, about 1974. But anyway, in 2001, all of the people who worked for uh, on the Monitor program, the talent, the engineers, the assistants, the directors, the associate directors, a lot of people on this show, 
And it was really fun to work, like, for instance, with Henry Morgan, who would duck out of the studio as soon as he was off the air and run literally to the airport to fly back to Canada, where he spent the rest of the week avoiding his wife, who was trying to sue him at the time. But anyway, at this reunion we had at Hurley's, which is a, a famous bar, um, all the monitor people got together, and we were all interviewing each other. I got to interview, um, uh, stand up with, uh, interview uh, Miss Monitor from the 50s. Miss Monitor was... Um, a sexy voiced lady named Teddy Thurman. And she would say something like, she'd usually be introduced by Bob and Ray. And she would uh, say, the weather in Atlanta tonight is hot, baby, hot. And you know, radios all over the country would melt. But at any rate, during the festivities, I found myself introducing Fred Collins. I have a picture of me doing that. And here's a guy who I listened to in the 50s, I worked with in the, in the 60s, and introduced during the Monitor reunion in 2001 or 2002. Okay, end of story. Thank you for listening. Oh, well, good. I like the little uh, story about Henry Morgan <laughs> running to the airport to avoid the ex-wife. I, I knew he was in Canada, and I knew he was there because the wives were chasing him. That, that, that's cute. Um, I like the Henry Morgan show a lot. We've, we've played a lot of those on, on this uh, program, and listeners seem to like them too. All right. Well, we're going to um, wrap up this one, and we'll do one more and then send you off into the sunset here. Um, this is John Tefteller in the good old days of radio show. You're listening to J. David Golden or Dave Golden, the legendary radio show collector, the creator of the Radio Golden Index, and all that great stuff from a long time ago that's still out there and still going strong. All right. Uh, we'll be back next week with one more uh, segment with David Golden. Until then, this is John Tefteller saying goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>